0: We're gonna be looking at Daniel chapter 11. Years ago, um, with uh, my uncle Paul, um, we went through this um, in, in what we called our Daniel class, uh, kind of like your kingdom class. It began looking at one subject and then it kind of went all over the place and we looked at the cherubim and we looked at, eventually into the book of Revelation and we went hither and yon. Um, and it was a really exciting study. One of the areas that, that I found uh, amazing was Daniel chapter 11, and that's really what we're going to focus on. Now, we were using um, Exposition of Daniel at the time, and um, this is kind of what this class is trying to do, is take the section that Brother Thomas wrote in Exposition of Daniel, and it begins on page 46 of the copy that I've got here, and it's a paraphrase of Daniel chapter 11, um, as you kind of go through from verses 1 down to where we're going to end up, which is verse 45. And uh, or 35, I should say, for this evening, and God willing, we'll pick it up a little bit later um, and look at the rest. Now, with Daniel chapter 11, it's one of those chapters that you read through it in the readings, if you're like me, and it's a bit of a chew, like you kind of try to chew through this, and there's a lot of information, there's a lot of this king and that king, and what Brother Thomas has done is actually go in and kind of paraphrase it and put it into a way that he, he kind of fills in the gaps. And really, Daniel chapter 11 is the place between the Testaments. So if you think about um, the end of the New Testament, we have sort of Malachi as our last book of the Old Testament, and the sun goes down upon the prophets. And then we kind of pick up the story in uh, Luke, let's say, and we have there people like Anna and Simeon And they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're looking for the Messiah to come. And of course, in Daniel, we have the the 70 weeks prophecy that says from the building of the wall until um, Messiah the Prince would be this period of time. So there were people that, that got into Bible prophecy, that they understood the story, and they were waiting with anticipation for the coming of Messiah. But it wasn't like they had nothing to go on, that there was just this sort of three or 400 years where there was just no information. They had Daniel chapter 11. And Daniel chapter 11 was sort of their blow by blow as they watched uh, events um, in their days and they got their news of what was going on and many of them were living through it because they were living in the land um, of, of Judea at the time. Um, coming back after the time of... of um, Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, Zechariah and, and uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, they'd all come back in, in a series of phases. And um, and so there was a, a faithful little community living there. And there were some not so faithful, but there was a group of people there during that time. And it's not like God gave them nothing. Um, we sort of look at it as like we don't really have the story of what happened during that time um, in like a Kings or a Chronicles or an Isaiah, um, but what we do have is Daniel chapter 11, which when you compare it with secular history is, um, is a fantastic description of what took place. In fact, it's so detailed that critics of the Bible have said that Daniel chapter 11 must have been written after the fact because it's just too detailed. And we, we hope to kind of walk through that detail. We're just gonna take our time and, and contrary to what Richard will tell you, we're gonna try and sort of walk through this slowly and, um, and try and just sort of like chew on what's in there and kind of just follow the verses through. So make sure you've got Daniel 11 open. What Brother Thomas does is he relies heavily um, on the different writers uh, such as Herodotus and others who are um, uh, talking about um, what is going on here. And I'm just gonna turn off my speaker just in case you're getting feedback from me. There we go, that might help. Um, So uh, we're gonna try and go through this. Brother Thomas used Herodotus, but he also used Rollins Ancient History. Now, if you don't have a copy of Rollins Ancient History, um, every good young Bible student needs a copy of Rollins Ancient History. If you're ever looking for an exciting read, this is where you're gonna go, because Rollins was um, basically prior to the French Revolution. I got a little bit of conflicting information on his background. I heard from some that he was a Huguenot. Um, I don't think he was. I think though he was classified with the Huguenots because they didn't like what he wrote. Um, But what he basically does is he writes a university course for the day um, on the ancient history. And his premise, uh, which he starts out with is to say that, When we look at the Bible, the Bible is the authority. And where secular history diverges from the Bible, the Bible is the inspired word, so it is correct. And secular history is probably just off base a little bit. Um, So he kind of takes the secular history and weaves it in with the Bible and uses the Bible to moderate between people like Xenophon or Herodotus or other people that were writing about the time and helps to kind of give us a good idea of what it's all about. So Rollins Ancient History, check out the the Christadelphian office if you're rolling around the countryside in Britain. Every time I come there, my goal is to come home with a copy of Rollins um, because there's not that many of them in um, the – there's not that many of them in the – in the North American, I guess you could say, hemisphere. So we try to bring them back for Bible students here. Um, But get yourself a copy of Rollins. Read the sections on Alexander the Great, on Cyrus and the taking of Babylon. They are some of the most fantastic uh, descriptions. Actually, it's what Brother Thomas wrote his first talks on. And um, he used them because Rollins goes in, he gives you all the biblical evidence And um, he says, chapter and verse, this is what the Bible says, and then tells you what history uh, tells us happened at that point in time. So it's an excellent, excellent read. Highly recommend it for any young person who wants to study. Um, It's super exciting. And um, it's one of those books, believe it or not, you, you can't really put it down when you get into the story of, you know, Cyrus taking Babylon because... It's the word of God coming to life. So what brother Thomas does in Daniel chapter 11 is he takes a lot of those resources and pulls them together and basically scripts out for us um, a a story that basically goes through verse by verse and then he interjects the history into Daniel chapter 11. So it's all there for you in exposition of Daniel if you wanna go back. What we're going to try and do tonight is kind of go through it and illustrate a little bit of that uh, material as well, because most of us have grown up in a much more um, visual uh, sort of background. We like to see things, and that's certainly me. Um, I like to actually, you know, picture who were these people, what did they look like, and we have a lot of that information um, that's been dug up in the Middle East that we can utilize now to actually understand what this is all about. So we want to begin, um, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, first of all, and this is what God says, of course, to um, the, uh, well, it's actually what Daniel says to um, King Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him, there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter day. So that's what he does. And this chapter 11 leads through from Daniel's time, basically, right the way through to the Lord Jesus Christ's time, and then into the, the kingdom age or the beginning of the kingdom age, uh, right into our time, 1917, the king of the north and the king of the south. But that's the continuation. So a lot of us are very familiar with the end of the chapter, where we have in verse 40 at the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. We're very familiar with that um but the section before verses 1 down to 39 is not so much an area that we're familiar with so god willing we're going to kind of travel through this tonight and take a look at what um is is described for us so we're going to begin right at the beginning there daniel chapter 11 and we have verse 1 and he gives you his context he says I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him, right? So Daniel is alive in the first year of Darius the Mede. So this is the time of um, the lion's den, right? So this is Daniel in the lion's den. Now, a lot of our Sunday school pictures, depict Daniel at about 40 years old, maybe when he goes into the lion's den. He's a young man, he's got a healthy beard, um, and it's completely off base. Daniel is probably around 87 years old when he goes to the lion's den. And when I'm speaking um, sometimes to Ecclesias, uh, and you've got and sisters who are in their 80s, and they're sort of like, you know, Um, saying, well, you know, I'm kind of past it, I'm done. I'm like, oh, no, you're not. And this is the time when Caleb fought his giant. Um, If you remember, he was 40 years in the wilderness and about 40 years before that. Um, And then he comes with Joshua, they take the land. And of course, he then fights his giant well into his 80s. And Daniel's around 87 when he's put into the lion's den. So if we're thinking when we get a little bit older that, you know, we retire from the truth, no such thing in fact i remember sister charlene and i one time we were in northern california and it was cowboy country and um on the way to the meeting there was only two brethren in this meeting and one of them was terminally ill and um the brother driving me there was explaining the tragic circumstances of how this brother was terminally ill and so we got to meeting And I got to meet the brother, and um, he was very much, um, I'm going to say, sort of a cowboy type of individual. And one of the things he said was, you know, he says, well, brother, he says, I was retired and all, and I was thinking a lot, maybe you could preside for the whole weekend. And this brother that was with me turned around and said, listen, brother, he says, when we're shoveling dirt on your cold corpse is when you retire from the truth. And I was totally taking aback, having just heard that this brother was actually terminally ill. Um, But in typical Californian mode, he just simply responded, well, shoot, brother, I guess you're right. You preside Saturday and I'll preside Sunday. And, And so it went on. And, and that's the beauty of the truth. There is no retirement from it. We go on to the very end and we fight until the very end and we hang on to the very end. That's what we're told in the book of Revelation. This is the very end of Daniel's life. He's 87 plus years old. And this is when he gets this vision that tells him the story that's going to take place now on all the way through. So we've got to kind of enter into that. And in verse one, that's where we are. And so what happens in verse two, he says, now I will show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. So this is Michael, the prince that's with him. And he's showing him all of these things that are going on. A little bit of context it's back to actually chapter 10 and verse 12. Um, This is where actually it's Gabriel. uh, Gabriel in chapter 10, verse 12 said to Daniel, fear not. For from the first day you set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before your God, your words were heard and I've come for your words. And and Gabriel says, look, the prince of Persia would stood me one and 20 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and, and I remained with the king of Persia. Now I'm come to tell you about what's gonna happen. So when we get in chapter 11, it's actually a continuation of chapter uh, chapter 10. And and here is Gabriel standing to strengthen uh, Daniel and to tell him basically uh, what is taking place. And um, he says, I'm going to show you the truth, right? So this is what's going to happen as Daniel gets into this story. And so it is, he says there, um, actually, if we start in verse two, um, there's going to stand up yet three kings in Persia. And so the three kings we have are Ahasuerus, Smyrdus, and Darius the Second. So those are the three kings that are going to stand up in Persia, and um, and then he says a fourth verse two. Even Xerxes, as this is the paraphrase from brother brother Thomas, um, shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he will stir up. Um, all against the realm of Grecia. So this Xerxes, um, some believe that this is actually the Ahasuerus that Esther married. Um, and uh, basically one of his exploits was that he would stand up against the king or the realm of Grecia. Now there's a bit of debate on that. I'm not going to get into that. We're just going to try and follow the narrative through. Um, but this is what Xerxes uh, is recorded in Herodotus histories. He says, my intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and to march an army through Europe against Greece. So he wanted to cross from what we call Turkey today into Greece and basically, um, uh, well, through Europe into the area of Greece, right? So he says that thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. Your own eyes saw the preparations of Darius against these men, but death came upon him and balked his hopes of revenge. In his behalf, therefore, and on behalf of the Persians, I undertake the war and pledge myself not to rest till I have burnt Athens, which which has dared unprovoked to injure me and my father." So that's what he writes about, and of course, he would do that. He would go and he would burn Athens to the ground, And the Greeks would never forgive him for this. And so what happens in verse 3 is we have this individual comes along in in Daniel chapter 11, verse 3. A mighty king uh, shall stand up that does rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Well, that mighty king we know as Alexander the Great. So there's a bit of a connection here between Daniel chapter 8 And of course, um, the great, the little horn, um, or not the little horn, sorry, the goat with the notable horn, um, and that horn would be broken, um, as we'll look at in just a moment. But he comes, basically, it's the king that's going to do according to his will um, in Daniel chapter 11, verse three. So this is Alexander the Great, and it's a characteristic of these kings um, that we read of in Daniel chapter 11. It comes up later on as well. So it's it's typical of the way that they would um, behave. And so as we keep reading in Daniel 11, if you look down to verse four, when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, And shall be divided towards the four winds of heaven, not according to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So here we have Alexander the Great. We know the story. The notable horn is going to be broken. And of course, instead of his posterity, other people are going to rule it. So it's not according to his posterity. And it's interesting that Cassander would come along and he would take over. He's one of the four kings that we saw there. Uh, He takes over Macedonia, and he actually murders Alexander's wife and infant son. So it's not gonna be according to his posterity. So this is the lovely people of the world. This is how the kings of the earth roll. You eliminate the opposition. So he murders Alexander's wife and Alexander's infant son to basically say that it's not gonna be according to his posterity or basically after his lineage, even though he had a line, um, it wouldn't be the case. So Alexander died of course um, in Babylon and uh, he was only about 33 years old or so and um, and he dies in Babylon, and then it takes about 50 years for all of this division to take place in his kingdom, but his generals basically um, start dividing it up, and Cassandra takes over the area of Macedonia that's marked in green on the map there, and that's sort of Greece and Macedonia. And then, of course, Lysimachus takes over the area of Thrace. So Thrace is the area slightly... Um, west of this, and uh, we see Thrace there now. It covers what we would call today kind of Turkey, that Balkan area, um, a bit of the Balkan area, um, and and right the way down into northern, what we would call Turkey today, and it borders on the Seleucid Empire. So he takes over and he rules the Thracian Empire, and that's him there in all his marble glory. And um, Further to the south, though, or I should say to the, to the eastern area of this, we have the Seleucids. And so this is Seleucus Nicator, who is going to rule the Seleucid Empire. He takes this rather large swath of land. So if you remember, Alexander pushed all the way through Persia, right the way across to India. He went up into Afghanistan. Well, the Seleucids take all of that swath of area. And they take a good portion of um, of Turkey as well, as we would know it today, uh, right the way down through what we would call Syria and Lebanon. Um, And they also take part of Judea, which they will fight backwards and forwards with, um, with the Ptolemies in the south. And that's really the story of Daniel chapter 11 is the battle that's taking place for that little piece of land there that's in the middle between the Seleucids and between the Ptolemies. And that same argument continues on right to the very end in the latter days when we have the Russians coming down and when we have the, uh, the, the ships of Tarsus and the young lions thereof that kind of form that king of the south, south power um, that will be resisting against them. It's the same story that's been going on since the time of Alexander the Great. So in the south then we have those Ptolemies Uh, Ptolemy Soter, who is in the the very south there, this actually you can go to the British Museum, this is where I think I took this photo from, and um, his statue is there, and uh, of course he ruled over Egypt, so he's depicted with Egyptian headdress there, and um, this is the area that of course would be um, ruled over by the Ptolemies right the way up until the time of Herod the Great, Um, And that's where we'll end our story is up at that time period with Cleopatra, Mark Antony, and all of that nonsense that went on. So it's quite a a, a sordid tale of of one fighting the other. And we want to just kind of follow it along so that when you read, you know, Daniel chapter 11, um, you'll have a bit of an idea of what's going on there. And if you get lost in the detail, you can always go back and um, I'll I'll, uh, turn this into a, a PowerPoint or a PDF maybe and I'll, and I'll sip it over to Luke and then you guys can um, you know have it as a reference point but you've got an exposition of Daniel which will give you the text as well so moving on then as we have it in verse 5 we have there this description the king of the south so the king of the south are the ptolemies right so these are the ones ptolemy sota to begin with and one of his which is alexander's princes and he shall be strong above him and have dominion his dominion shall be great dominion so he has the area of egypt libya arabia uh, judea galilee syria Asia Minor, Cyprus, and some cities in Greece as well. So he has quite an area that he he rules over, Um, but we have then this backwards and forwards that begins between these two forces. So when you get into Daniel chapter eleven and verse six, and this is again, so what you've got here is the the white is the um, is the text from well the paraphrase actually from from uh, the Bible, and then the yellow is Brother Thomas's explanation of it. So we've got some of the characters there, so that it's a little bit easier to understand. So in the end of years, and it doesn't tell us how long, but it's actually fifty two years. The king of the south, or the king of Egypt, and the Assyrio-Macedonian horn of the north shall join themselves together for the kings, that's Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the king at that point in time, his daughter, the niece of the south shall come to the king of the north, which was Antiochus Theos at that time. So we're rolling on now in, in the, the, the history of this, and this is the descendants of the originals. And they're gonna make a marriage, which was around 253 BC. It was an agreement. But it says she shall not retain the power of the arm, that is of her father, Ptolemy Philadelphus. Neither shall he, her husband, Antiochus stand. For Laodice, his reputed wife, who he shall receive again when he divorces Benice after her father's death, shall cause him to be poisoned in 246 BC. What a lovely story. So it's it's this idea of you've got a king who is giving his uh, daughter, so this is Ptolemy Philadelphus, um, whose name means the lover of his brother. He gives his daughter um, to uh, the king of the north, so to speak, Antiochus Theos, um, but, of course, the king of the north is already married, and his wife, Laodice um, is not very happy with this idea. And so, basically, after uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus dies, um, Antiochus Theus divorces his wife, um, Benice, the Ptolemaic woman. Um, but the problem is, is his other wife um, does not forgive him for actually marrying in the first place. So, he gets poisoned by her, and it says that, nor his arm, Benice, um, but she shall be given up to suffer death, and they, the Egyptians also, that brought her to Syria, and he, that begets, uh, and he that she begets her son, and he that is strengthened in these times shall die, and thus leave her to the mercy of Laodice, um, which will be treachery and death. So it's, it's a lovely, sordid tale of two women who basically hash it out, and um, and not very nice at all. Um, and you got you got to remember, like you got brothers and sisters um, living at this time in Judea, watching all this going on, and, and they're reading the text of Daniel eleven. And they're actually able to identify what's taking place. So as we move on to verse seven. Out of a branch of her parents' roots, that is, so we're talking about the queen of the south, uh, Ptolemy Eugertes, which is her brother, shall stand up in his estate or kingdom and come with an army. So he's kind of ticked off that they killed his sister and shall enter into Antioch, the capital, and the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal or make war against them, even against Laodice and her son Seleucus, and shall prevail. And so this is Antioch that we read about in the Bible. And this is like, you know, comes up in the, the time later on with um, the Acts of the Apostles, but this is in an earlier day. So he's going to come, her brother, and make war against Laodicea and her son Seleucus and um, shall prevail. And Eugerti shall also carry captive into Egypt their gods and their with their princes and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And she'll continue to reign nine uh, more years than the king of the north, who shall die a prisoner in Parthia five years before the king of Egypt. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return to his own land. And so what's interesting about this is that this, this going between the king of the north and the king of the south, when we read later on in the chapter about the king of the north coming down and having power over the precious things of Egypt and taking silver and gold and so on and so forth, that's not something that's just picked out of the sky. That's what's been going on for a millennia or two and a half millennia just about. And um, So it just helps us when we look at those later verses to understand that this is the kind of thing that has been happening all through history as they fought for dominance over the land of Judea. And so that's verses seven and eight. Um, and so we've got the king of the south who's now returned and he's gone back to his own land and the king of the north has pegged it in Parthia and, um, and the next chapter begins. So verse 10, but his, Seleucus Callinicus's son, Seleucus Serenus and Antiochus, shall be stirred up to war, and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them, even Antiochus the Great, that we're familiar with in history, shall certainly come and overflow through the passes of Labanus, and pass through into Galilee, and possess himself of all that part of the country, which was formerly the inheritance of the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And then, the season being too advanced to prolong his campaign, he returns to Ptolemaeus, where he shall put his forces into winter quarters. So you've got the yellow, which is Brother Thomas's kind of expanded upon little section there, which I find super helpful. Um, And we get the picture of the who's who here. So you've got Seleucus II, whose name is Callinicus. And then you've got Seleucus III, or Serranus. Um, and his name is basically the idea of Soter or savior. And these two basically um, with Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great, um, basically who came to power um, fully himself in 2222, 20, uh, um, after his brother was assassinated, they join forces and they come into the land and they're now gonna punish the, the Ptolemies for doing what they did uh, five years earlier. So, we have this backwards and forwards battle between all these lovely Greeks, um, some in the north, some in the south, as they fight over the land. So, these are the horns of Daniel's um, or of uh, the Grecian goat. Remember, they had the notable horn broken into four, and two of them kind of don't disappear off the scene. One of them will come back later on, but the other two are embroiled in a struggle. Over the Holy Land and over Judea um, and that's really the, the battleground that all of this is going to take place on so um, and you can imagine if you were a Jew living at the time you'd have the Ptolemies invade they take over and then come the the uh, Seleucids and they take over and you just got a backwards and forwards between kind of who's on first who's who's the king of the hill so to speak um, and the Jews in the middle of all this are being tossed around like a ragdoll um, and of course it it really teaches us about not being involved in the politics of this world, because they're so fickle. And and so the Jews had to maintain their independent um, identity, Um, and had they um, sort of done that uh, a little bit more, I would say specifically with their religion, which is what they tried to do, um, they they basically wouldn't have got embroiled with either side as much as they could, and and wouldn't have experienced some of the things that were coming upon them shortly. So in the early spring, uh, Ptolemy Philopater um, will march with a large army uh, to Raphia near Gaza, by which Antiochus shall be stirred up to war. So you think about tidings out of the east and out of the north will stir up the king of the north. Well, this is the same thing that's going on just, you know, 2,000 plus years earlier. So he's going to stir up to war the king of the north who's going to be uh, uh, defeated with great slaughter so that he will retreat to his fortress. Thus, the king of the south, he moved with Kola to come forth and fight with the king of the north. And the king of the north shall set forth a great multitude, even 72,000 footmen and 6,000 horse but the multitude shall be given into the hand of the king of Egypt. So we have Ptolemy Philippator here, who's going to come against Antiochus third, and of course the two of them are going to have this battle, and it's eventually going to go in the favor of the king of the south as the king of the north's force is kind of captured. Um, but verse 12, not to be undone, uh, when he, the king of the south, had taken away the multitude by a signal defeat of Antiochus, his heart was lifted up. And his desire to, is to enter the most holy place of the temple, but while he's preparing to enter, he's stricken and carried off for dead. And in his victory over Antiochus, he shall cast down ten thousands, even ten thousand foot and three hundred horse. But not following up on his advantages, Philopater shall not be strengthened, but his victory uh, by his victory for the king of the north now, Antiochus, um, is gonna return and set forth a multitude of troops greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain, that is 19 years, after the Battle of Raffia, or BC 158, with a great army and with much riches, and he will subjugate all the holy and the area of what we would call Syria today, it was a little bit larger than that. So you can see here that this push between the north and the south is a constant thing. And, and when we reach the end of the chapter, it's nothing new. Um, the king of the south pushes, the king of the north pushes back. It also helps us understand that when you look at Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, that there is a a large amount of years between the king of the south pushing at him and the king of the north returning that push. Sometimes for us living at the latter day, like 1917 was when We had Allenby enter into Jerusalem, and we're now 2020. That's 203 years later. It seems like a huge amount of time. And it seems, yeah, well, you know, it, it should be more immediate. But when you look back at the rest of Daniel 11, you realize that there were some great time periods between the different verses, and it doesn't become such a stretch to understand what is taking place. So we have that going back to B.C., um, for, or 205 or 221 thereabouts, we have basically, um, or 198 as we are, this invasion that comes after 19 years, the great army comes with much riches and they subjugate the holy land again and the area of Syria. So verse 14, in those times, a guy named Ptolemy Epiphanes shall reign over Egypt And many shall stand up against the infant king of the south. So he's a young guy. um, And the kings of Macedonia and Syria and Scopus, uh, the general of his deceased father, these are the ones that are going to stand up against him. But the deputies of the breakers of thy people, which is Judah, O Daniel, that is the Romans, shall interfere and establish the vision. So we've got here this machination that's going on. This is their plan. But we've got this other group now that kind of starts getting involved. These are the Romans, which of course are that little horn that are going to come up. Now, I'm not talking the little horn of Daniel 7, but it's the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 that develop out of one of the horns. and so. Daniel 11 gives us a little bit of detail on that. So the Romans become the guardians and the protectors of Epiphanes during his minority. So he's like a regent king or the Romans become like regent rulers. And they appoint three deputies who are ordered to acquaint the kings with their resolution and to enjoin them not to infest the dominions of their royal pupil. Uh, For that, otherwise, they should be forced to declare war against them. So they kind of take over. And say, look, if you attack the uh, Egyptians or the Ptolemies of the south, then we're going to come against you. So the deputy, deputy Emilius, one of the three, after delivering the message of the Roman summit, proceeded to Alexandria and settled everything as much as the advantage of the state of the affairs would then admit. In this way, the Romans began to mix themselves up in the affairs of Egypt, Syria, and the Holy Land. So this is this is basically the beginning of Roman influence in this area. And then a few years established themselves as Lords Paramount of the East, being thus constituted the power of Asia, which is symbolized in the relation by the little horn on the northern horn of the kingdom or of of Grecian goat, and in the 36th verse of the chapter, the king. Um, but through, though destined to be the breakers of Judah, uh, the assurance is given by Daniel, they shall fall. So, so their destiny is to come and break Judah up as we find out in those latter verses. But of course, they're not eventually to, to have this. This is a long game. This is a 2,300 year, uh, game is Daniel chapter 11. It's not a short game. Um, And so eventually, God will overthrow the Romans, the Greeks, and all of these who make up Daniel chapter 11, the image power that Brother Thomas talks about elsewhere in Exposition of Daniel. So, So we've got this battle going on. The Romans now becoming involved. Verse 15, the king of the north, being checked by the Roman deputies, shall come into the Holy Land and cast up a mount against Sidon where he shall besiege the fortress of the Egyptians. And he shall take Jerusalem, the city of munitions, from the castle of which he shall expel the Egyptian garrison. And the arms of the south shall not withstand um, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand Antiochus in verse 16. But Antiochus, who cometh against Ptolemy Epiphanes, shall do according to his will. In Syria and the Holy Land, and none shall stand before him. He shall make a permanent stand in the land of glory by which his hand uh, shall be consumed. So, this is Antiochus the Great, or Antiochus Megas, as he was known in the Greek, who took Jerusalem, kicked out the Egyptians in, in 198 BC, ending the Ptolemaic rule of Judea. And he invades Greece. But of course the Romans had threatened, look, if you do this, we're gonna come and get involved. And this is really what draws the Romans into the land in these latter days. So then we start getting names that that kind of remember, or we remember a little bit. This is the, the first Cleopatra, not the one of Mark Antony, but Antiochus III, Cleopatra, and Ptolemy Epiphanes. So verse 17, he shall set his face to enter into Greece and strengthen with the strength of his whole kingdom and the Israelites with him. So he's, he's now taken over. So this is the king of the north who has taken over the land of Judea and he's got the Israelites now on his side. Thus shall he do to incorporate Greece into his dominion by which the Romans who had recently proclaimed it to be free would be stirred up against him. And therefore, to secure the neutrality of their Egyptian ally, he shall give Cleopatra, the daughter of women or a royal princess to Epiphanes, to wife, corrupting her to betray him by resigning to him Syria and Palestine as her dower, Um, but on condition that he should receive half of the revenue. So it's a little bit of deceit that they carry out here to try to pull this this area of Judea away from them. First, the land of Judah was given over as a bribe to blind Cleopatra to her father's interests, that she might influence Epiphanes uh, either to remain neutral or to declare against the Romans his protectors. But she, Uh, will cleave to her husband and not stand, neither be for him, but shall join with her husband in congratulating the Roman Senate on the victory they had gained over her father at Thermopylae." So we can see here there's this intrigue going on, and it's sort of like the political world of, of, um, it's like a political soap opera is really what it's like, as they're all trying these intrigues to win one another's favor, fighting over the land, fighting over the power in this area. And of course this doesn't go so well. So uh, what we have is uh, a little bit of the area here you can see then. So we've we've kind of broken this down now into um, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids really are the ones that are ruling now. We got the Carthaginians over there in the red. I Think of Hannibal, um, that's the area where he is. And you've got the Romans who are now growing in power. Um, And then there's other groups that are basically Um, still in the area, um, but it really becomes a Ptolemy versus Seleucid uh, battle at this point in time or influence. And so what we read then in verse 18 is that after this, Antiochus, at the earnest solicitation of the Aetolians, turns his face unto the Isle of Greece, and he shall take many But a chieftain, a Roman consul, a guy named Scipio, which you may have recognized his name, Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, lovely name, um, he's the guy basically who shall cause the reproach offered to him to cease. Without his own disgrace, he, Scipio, shall cause it to turn upon Antiochus by defeating him at Mount Sipilus and repulsing him from every part of Asia Minor. As the condition of peace, the Romans require him to pay 15,000 talents, 500 right away, and 2,500 on the ratification of the treaty, and in the rest of 12 years, 1,000 talents per annum. And so verse 19, these terms are agreed to, and so he then turns his face towards the fortress or capital of his own land. So he heads on back. But the problem is, as Brother Thomas points out here, being much at a loss is how he's going to pay this tribute. So he's gone and he's invaded this area. He's lost this battle. He's now told he's got to pray, pay reparations. So he's not sure how he's going to raise the tribute. So while in the province of Elimaeus, he heard of a considerable treasure in the temple of Jupiter Bellus. So he accordingly broke into it in the dead of night and carried off all the riches because he needs to pay this bill he's run up. Uh, But the problem is the provincials, exasperated by the robbery, rebelled against him and murdered him and all his attendants in 187. Um, The problem is, though, is that the bill still stands. So verse 20, then shall uh, stand up Antiochus in Antiochus' estate or kingdom his son, Seleucus Philopater. So there is Seleucus Philopater on that coin. One who causes an exacter to pass over the glory of the kingdom. So the business of his reign is basically, this is his policy, is to raise the tribute to the Romans. So we think of people today, and you say, well, you know, what is the the destiny, what is the the legacy, let's say, of Boris Johnson? Well, it's Brexit, and then maybe COVID thrown on top. And that's what he'll be remembered for. Well, this guy, Seleucus Philippator, his entire reign was all about making up money to pay the tribute to the Romans. Um, so that's the actual, if you look down there, you, have got Scipio's, um, or the um, Heliodorus Stele, um, which basically is, is a, um, artifact from this point in time, because we read within a few days, that is 12 years, he's going to be destroyed, neither in anger or in battle, but he's going to be poisoned by Heliodorus, his prime minister, having reigned just long enough to make the last installment to the Romans. So Heliodorus is the prime minister for Seleucus Philippator. So he's kind of like the Dominic Rav or whatever you want to call him. Um, and so he sits there in the background and he's managing the affairs for good old Johnson. And then as soon as Brexit's completed or whatever it might be, that's it. He he uh, kills him off and takes over. And so that's the Heliodorus, um, uh, Uh, stele basically that has all these this information written down on it and um, of course what Heliodorus does is he's sent to Jerusalem and he seizes the Jewish treasury and so that's how they they came up and paid this amount so verse 21 in his that is Seleucus Philippi's place shall stand up Heliodorus, who was his prime minister, a vile person, being both a poisoner and a usurper, so he's murdered the king and he's now taken over, to whom they, the authorities of the nation, shall not give the honor of the kingdom but Antiochus Epiphanes shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries bestowed upon the inheritance uh, or the inheritance of, of Heliodorus. So, so um, Antiochus Epiphanes comes along and kind of makes a deal with the people that were supposed to be the supporters of Heliodorus. And so consequently, Heliodorus um, doesn't exactly do so well. So in verse 22, with the arms of a flood by which they shall be formidably invaded, shall they, that is the Egyptians, be overflown from before Antiochus, whom they excite to war by demanding the restitution of Syria and Palestine. Because remember, they're to the north of this area, but they rule the area of Syria and Palestine at this point in time. And they shall be broken or subdued. J yea also Anias, the high priest, or prince of the Mosaic government, shall be murdered, as shall come to pass BC 172. After the league made with Ptolemy Philomater, Antiochus shall work deceitfully. After his second invasion of Egypt, which is BC 170, he shall come up to Alexandria, and he shall become strong with a small people or army. So we have here Ptolemy Philopator, who basically, uh, his name means lover of his mother. Um, He reigns six years, and he's co-regent with his mother, Cleopatra I. Um, And and later Cleopatra the second the sister actually of his who we actually marry So it's a very sordid tale. This lot of um, rather rotten uh, Greeks as they they go about their their lives here and you can see he's got that sort of Egyptian uh, Headdress on which kind of shows you this is what he's all about and on the other side got Antiochus Epiphanes Who is the king of the north? so by deceit verse 24 He's gonna enter peaceably, even upon the fattest places of the province, which he reduces to Egypt, and he, Antiochus, shall do what that which his father, or predecessor to the throne, Uh, have not done, nor his father's fathers, namely, he will scatter among his followers the prey and the spoils and the riches, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds of Egypt even for a time. So he gets people behind him by involving them in this, and he's going to come and do his best to throw this lot out. So verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, And the king of the south is gonna be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he's not gonna do so well. He's not going to stand. For the Alexandrians, seeing him in the hands of Antiochus and lost to them, shall forecast devices against him and place the crown of Egypt on the head of his brother, Eugertes, also known of Ptolemy Sycon. Uh, And in verse 26, yea, they shall feed the portion of Philometer's meat, even his courtiers uh, shall separate or renounce him and Antiochus Army shall overflow Egypt, and many of the Egyptians shall fall down slain. So what happens is they kind of make this, um, this uh, agreement with Ptolemy Sikon, a very interesting name. It actually means sausage or potbelly. So here's the, the potbelly king, and he's the brother of Philometer. And um, the people in Egypt kind of side with him when they think that his brother's not doing so well with the king of the north but the king of the north then comes rushing down and um, many of the Egyptians will fall down slain. So in verse 27, the heart of both these kings shall be to do mischief and they shall speak lies one to another and shall not prosper for the end is still at the time appointed. Interesting words when you think of Ezekiel 38, he thinks an evil thought. We have the same kind of idea here back in the history of the Greeks as they fight over the land of Palestine or, or Judea in the middle and the Galilee. And so in verse 28, now it gets very personal and really affects the brethren sisters and sisters and the people in Israel. So then shall Antiochus return into his land with great riches because he's spoiled Egypt and his heart shall be against the covenant of the holy and he shall do terrible things against Jerusalem taking it by storm butchering 80,000 men taking 40,000 prisoners and causing a like number to be sold for slaves and then he returns to his own land laden with the spoils of the temple about 18,000 talents and a talent weighs about 30 kilograms so it's about $2.2 billion worth of gold these days. And, um, and so this is what he does. He, he attacks the temple because He felt that the Jews had sided um, with the the Seleucids. And so he's ticked off at them and he goes and he he attacks the temple. He's got the the gold and the silver from the Egyptians. And now he comes up and he takes the temple. And it's kind of like a pattern of what the king of the north will do at the time of the end. um, That he goes into Egypt, gets silver and gold and so on. And then he comes up into the land of Israel. So when we're looking at these things, they don't exist in, in a complete Vacuum, we can see patterns of these events taking place uh, in times gone by. So then we we come to verse 29 now. So this has been going backwards and forwards, and we're around um, uh, 180 BC. um, At the time appointed, under the pretense of restoring Philometer to the throne, he shall return and come towards the south against Alexandria to besiege it, but it, this is his fourth invasion, shall not be as the former um, or the latter. He will raise a siege and march against Memphis, um, where he installs Philometer as king. And as soon however, as he departs, Philometer and Eugertes basically strike an agreement. And they agree to a joint reign over Egypt and Antiochus hearing about this. Uh, comes against it with a powerful army against Memphis, the original Memphis, not Memphis in Tennessee, um, but the original Memphis in Egypt, after which it's named, uh, for this purpose of subduing the country, having nearly accomplished his project, he marches against Alexandria, which was the only obstacle in him becoming absolute master of Egypt. So he thinks he's got it all in his grasp, but of course, um, there's a little bit more that takes place at this point in time. Verse 30, all Antiochus wrath is kindled at this interference. Therefore, he shall be grieved and returned and have indignation against the covenant of the holy. For in his return march through Palestine, he detached 20,000 men under Apollinus with orders to destroy Jerusalem in 168. And so he will do and he will return and have intelligence with them for the sake of the holy, the covenant of the holy. So Jerusalem is in the middle of all this as the king of the north coming down and trying to go into Egypt. He has to return then back up. So in verse 31, his arms shall stand on his part under Apollonius, And they, the Assyrian macedonian troops, shall penetrate the temple, the Ham-Mikdosh, the stronghold, and they will remove the daily... And in its place, they put a statue of Olympian Jupiter in the temple and a strong garrison in the castle to command it as the abomination making desolate its courts and overawing the nation. So you can think of Israelites at this time and amongst them, there would have been brothers and sisters must have just been absolutely decimated by what was going on but they had Daniel 11 to read and to have as a a bit of a a comfort to know that God was in control of these events as this terrible king, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes in and and puts a statue of Zeus right in the temple um, that of course had been built um, by Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and so on. Now, this is what Brother Thomas kind of gives us a little bit of of background here. Um, So as soon as Antiochus Epiphanes was returned to Antioch, he publishes a decree by which all his subjects were required to conform to the religion of the state. So this is persecution for the Jews. This was aimed chiefly at the Jews, whose religion and nation he was resolved to extirpate. Right, you want to get rid of them. So Athenians, or Athenaeus, sorry, a man advanced in years and extremely well-versed in all the ceremonies of Grecian idolatry was commissioned to carry out this edict um, into effect in Judea and Samaria. And as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he began by suppressing the daily, so the daily sacrifice or the evening morning sacrifice, and all the observances of the Mosaic laws. They were not allowed to keep the Sabbath, and other festivals were to be profaned. He forbade the circumcision of children, carried off and burnt as many copies of the law of the prophets he could find, and put to death anybody who acted contrary to the decrees of the king to establish it sooner in every part of the nation. Altars and chapels were filled with idols and erected in every city. Groves were planted. The officers were appointed over these and caused the people generally to offer sacrifice in them every month on every day of the month on the which the king was born to make them eat swine's flesh and other unclean animals dedicated or sacrificed there. And And Jerusalem was dedicated to Jupiter Olympus, whose statue was placed in it. This he did in great indignation against the covenant of the holy nation. And and brothers and sisters and young people, you can just imagine being a Jew living in Israel at this point in time. You can't circumcise your children. You can't keep the Sabbath. The feast days are are basically written off. You have to go and offer sacrifices before the the idols of the nations of the the Gentiles. It would have been a terrible time eating swine's flesh and and all this kind of thing that the law and the prophets, they, they destroy the word of God. They burn these things. And it reminds you very much of the Inquisition. This would be just like um, Christians, like Christadelphians, Waldenses and Paulicans and and so on, who lived during that period of time when the Roman Catholic Church reigned supreme. Uh, The Huguenots in the Alps forced into doing these things. Um, And and so when we look at Daniel 11 and, and what the people were going through, it really makes us appreciate, I think, when the Lord Jesus Christ came and they wanted him to be the king right then. You can understand it because this is what had been taking place. So in verse 32, as we kind of come to the end of the section, and such of the Jews as do wickedly against the covenant shall Antiochus by flatteries cause to dissemble. So there was a portion of them who were not mortified by this, but they were more interested in their place and their nation, and so they basically went along with this. Um, these not only forsook the covenant of the holy, but had intelligence with the king and aided him all they could in the desolation which was overspreading their country. And so you think about the time of, of uh, Zwingli, and and um, if you haven't read the the uh, Brethren in Christ or the Protesters, great book to read. It's about that time period um, in the fifteen hundreds, really, where they were doing the same thing. They were they were forsaking their brethren. Um, they were they were giving them up to the authorities. And the Lord writes about this in, in um, Matthew, uh, the, the Olivet prophecies about they will betray you and so on. It's the same story that's been going on from the beginning. And there would have been a group of Jews living through this at that point in time. But the Maccabees and their inherent uh, adherents, people who do know their God, shall be strong and shall do valiantly in war. Even they, Mattathias and his five sons, and others with them, that understand among the people shall instruct and encourage many, yet they of the Maccabean party shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil. Evil incidents of war for days, that is, seven years of of the ninth of Antiochus, uh, um, during the ninth of Antiochus, the era of the Asmoneans to the third of Demetrius Soter in BC, 161. So this introduces us to this group of people called the Maccabees, which we don't, you know, we don't have the apocrypha in our Bible, um, but you can read through Josephus and he gives you a little bit of history of this time period as well, but really it's the precursor to what we have with the families that will end up being there at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mattathias has five sons, John, Simon, Judas Maccabeus, Eleazar, and Jonathan, and um, some of these are, are sort of killed fairly early on. Um, but you have then Simon's sons, uh, John Herankus or uh, sorry, and um, he has a son Antigonus, and also Judas Aristobulus and Alexander Janius. And you can see as that line goes down, you end up with the daughter. Of the last of the line, so Aristobulus being the high priest, and Mariamne, his sister, marries Herod the Great. So this is the time period we're coming into, is where Herod marries into the family of the Maccabees. But the Maccabees, as we is, this is kind of giving you a bit of a background to it. The Maccabees are the group that are going to chuck out the the Greeks um, from this area of um, of of uh, Judea for a period of time. And so what we find here, and it's quite interesting, is that we have in verse 34, when they shall fall by those seven years' calamities, they shall be holpen with a little help. For while Antiochus was amusing himself and celebrating games in Daphne, Judas Maccabeus had raised the standard of independence and was helping his countrymen in Judea. He levies a small army, fortifies the cities, rebuilds fortresses, and they throw strong garrisons into them. And thereby, all the whole country, and defeated and killed Apollonius, the one who had made all these rules, made great slaughter of his troops, and with 3,000 men, he defeated Lysias with uh, 47,000 men, and another army of 20,000 under a guy named Timotheus and Bachides. And then the year before Christ, 170, he gave Lysias a second defeat at Beth Shura, by which he dispersed 65,000 of the enemy. So it's this little band of Jews, kind of like the Aragun of the day, who managed to overthrow the, these enormous forces of the Greeks, because they obviously are, are very motivated, but they're hoping with a little help. And that little help they received at the crisis, says Brother Thomas, was mingled with the supernatural, which they account for the extraordinaries, which will account for the extraordinary victories of the Jews over such powerful armies of the Greeks with such unequal forces. So in the battle near Timotheus near Jerusalem, it's related that when it waxed strong, there appeared in the sight of the enemy from heaven five comely men with horses and bridles of gold two of them led the jews and took maccabeus betwixt them and covered him on every side with weapons and kept him safe but shot arrows and lightnings against the enemies so that being confounded with blindness and full of trouble they were killed so that's taken from the maccabees second uh, of maccabees 10. so we have during this time this great um uprising that takes place and it would appear from history that there were divine events that would help them in this. And I I guess you could say when you look at 1967 or 1948, we have a similar situation where this tiny little Jewish force should have been wiped out, you know, all these millions of Arabs and just 350,000 Jews, and yet somehow they overcome. And it's a similar time of picture we've got here at the time of the Maccabees. And so Brother Thomas continues, also in the battle against Lysias near Bethshura, with his 80,000 Greeks, Maccabeus and the Jews prayed that Yahweh would send a good angel to deliver Israel. And in answer to this, as they were marching from Jerusalem, there appeared before them on horseback, one in white clothing, shaking his armor of gold. Thus they marched forward in their armor, ready not only to fight with men, but with most cruel beasts, And pierced through the walls of iron, having an helper from heaven. For Yahweh was merciful to them, and giving a charge upon their enemies like lions, they slew 11,000 footmen, 1,600 horsemen, and put the others to flight. So, this is the Maccabees um, that we're reading here. Um, Again, it's not inspired, um, but you can certainly see when you compare this time period to the time period of 1967 and 1948 that God in his purpose, fought with and for Israel against this Greek force. So they're hoping with a little help uh, from heaven in their struggle for independence, Crowned is crowned with success, yet that struggle many did cleave unto them with flatteries. So the trial was therefore necessary that the approved might be manifest to the deity. Hence, it was determined that the party of the wise shall be weak, to try them and to purify and to make them white for a time of the end. For then their services will be needed to assist in overthrowing the kingdom of Babylon and making the kingdom under the whole heaven as shown to Daniel in the the first year of Belshazzar. Um, And the end of the the Asmoneans was not right then. It was gonna go on for a little bit of, of time, it says. It was still for a time appointed. So his point here is that the faithful, the really faithful, um, during this period of time, some of them would die, right? And, and they would be purified and made white, but they would live faithfully, and they will be resurrected in the time of the end to finish the job, which, of course, we live right in that time period. So when we kind of take a look at this then, that's Daniel chapter 11. Just flip over then to Daniel chapter 8, where we have kind of the parallel running with this, just to tie these two things together. In Daniel chapter 8, we have that goat that came with a notable horn. And in verse 8, therefore, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. And so that's those four generals, Lysimica, Cassandra, um, Ptolemy, and, and Seleucus, And they would take over the empire as we've kind of followed through in Daniel 11 there. Um, But in Daniel chapter eight, verse nine, there comes up out of one of them, a little horn, which waxes exceeding great towards the south, towards the east and towards the pleasant land. So what's interesting there is note that little horn's direction. It goes towards the south and towards the east and towards the pleasant land, which of course is Israel, which means if you look at where it's going to, you can trace where it's coming from, which is out of the northwest. And so what we have is the story of Perseus, the last king of the Macedonians, who was defeated by the Romans in 168 BC. And basically, um, what we have here is he's wiped out by the Romans, but we still have the kingdom of Pergamum that is going on. And so it is in in 133 BC, Attalus the third wills the kingdom of Pergamum, which was formerly Thrace, over which one of Alexander's generals ruled, he wills it in his will to the Roman Empire. So he he couldn't quite come up with it, he didn't have a, a son to rule, and he kind of looked at the situation and said, the best thing for my people is that the Romans should take over this area and rule it. And so he willed it to the Roman people. So what we read in Daniel chapter eight and verse nine is out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great towards the south, towards the east and towards the pleasant land. And so it is the Romans being given the area of Thrace now become this little horn, which is going to head towards Jerusalem. And you're all familiar with this Charlie here. His name is Pompey, after which the city of Pompey was named. And Pompey was the general um, who would invade Judah and establish Roman rule in 63 BC. So he comes down and establish Roman rule and basically puts an end to the Hasmonean empire so to speak or not really empire but there it wasn't even a kingdom it was a state because they weren't kings per se Um, but he puts an end to the Jewish independence um, in the area of Judea and so what happens is that the Romans so Pompey is is co-ruling with Julius Caesar he was a general under Julius Caesar and um, what he ends up doing is is becomes part of one of these triumvirate. So these are um, the trinities of the Roman Empire, and you have three emperors, uh, Julius Caesar, Marcus Licinius Crassus, and Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, or Pompey the Great, right? So these guys rule from 54 to 44 BC. It only lasts about 10 years. What it ends up being is a power struggle between Julius Caesar and Pompey, and Marcus uh, Crassus basically is the one in the middle that's trying to kind of negotiate uh, or mediate between the two of them. So this is the first triumvirate. And of course, it doesn't last overly too long. This civil war between these two uh, takes place. And uh, Pompey basically, uh, Crassus actually dies after about one year in office, so he's off the scene. And so Pompey, who is the son-in-law to Julius Caesar, um, falls out with him. Um, because Caesar's daughter dies in childbirth, and Caesar blames Pompey. So the two of them scrap it out, and of course, Pompey is uh, not victorious. He is defeated at Pharsalus in 48 BC, uh, which leads him fleeing to Egypt, where he's killed by the Ptolemies, who are down in that area. So um, that's the end of Pompey and um, he's, he's knocked off the scene. And so Caesar now in 48 BC is victorious, and that lasts for all of four years, because in 44 BC, of course, Brutus comes along and assassinates um, Caesar. So Marcus Junius Brutus um, knocks out Caesar, and, uh, and basically that's the end of Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar, of course, is replaced then as kind of the, the sole emperor. He rules for a, a short period of time. But his name, Caesar, now becomes the, um, the dynastic name of the Roman rulers. And so we have this Charlie here, Gaius Octavius Thurnus. Um, and Octavius um, is basically uh, going to become Caesar's adopted son. So he's in the West. He's the first of the dictators. Then we have Marcus Lepidus, and he's kind of again in Africa, so it's the northern African areas. And then we have another Charlie that you're probably very familiar with, um, and that is Marcus Antonius, and he rules over the East. He marries actually Octavian's sister. Um, And of course, uh, these guys are united in a war against Brutus, who killed Caesar, and basically they take over and get rid of um, Brutus, and they establish the second triumvirate in 43 BC, which lasts for about 10 years. And so what happens is, um, during this time period, Herod the Great comes along, and Herod the Great is uh, has a patron. So Marcus Antonius basically says, um, or Herod goes to, to, uh, to Antony, Mark Antony, and Mark Antony goes to Rome on behalf of Herod and asks basically in the Senate that, uh, that the Roman rule in the area be confirmed upon Herod so that he would become king of Judea. And at this time Mark Antony is, is quite well liked. And so Herod is voted in unanimously as king of Judea. And so this is where Herod the Great comes along and he establishes in Judea his kingdom and uh, his power in this period of time. And this is, of course, the the great architect. He will build, first of all, the Antonia Fortress or the palace, which, of course, he names after Mark Antony because Mark Antony got him the job. So here's the Antonia Fortress that he builds. Um, The temple is begun in B.C. 20. And, of course, um, he builds the Tomb of the Patriarchs, which still stands today, the longest standing temporary structure in the history of the world um, because it's only a tomb until the patriarchs are raised um, and that's going to happen very shortly. But that's his work and it's fascinating actually because John the Baptist would have seen it because he would have grown up around the area of, of um, of Hebron, as would have Elizabeth and Zacharias and Mary, and probably even the Lord Himself, that temple, that structure, the tomb, would have been there all those years. But the temple itself was begun in around 20 uh, BC, and it was 47 years in building, so it was being built all the way until um, BC 40, uh, 27. Sorry, which is when, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ would have been there. Now, we all know the tale of Mark Antony and Cleopatra um, because Mark Antony fell in love with Cleopatra, the last Ptolemaic queen of Egypt, so things were going swimmingly until this point in time, and Octavian convinced the Roman Senate to declare war on Antony, for basically taking Cleopatra, who had been Caesar's lover uh, apparently, and he was disgusted by this as this was his father or adopted father. And so he moves uh, the Senate against Mark Antony. And so we have then again another civil war and um, we have Lepidus who goes off the scene and um, we have Mark Antony versus Gaius Octavius Thrunas. And the Battle of Actium, which takes place in Greece in 31 BC, where, of course, um, the war is in an earnest. It's a naval engagement between Octavian and the forces of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. But you see, the problem was, is that Cleopatra and Mark Antony... Um, had uh, sort of shown some favor to Herod. So Herod actually joined them in this little operation, um, or certainly was supporting them. But on the 2nd of September, 31 BC, um, this battle takes place, and of course, it doesn't go so well. And so Mark Antony and Cleopatra unite forces against Octavian, but are defeated. And of course, both of them end up committing suicide. Um, and Mark Antony's uh, good friend, Herod, um, who had been appointed by Mark Antony, had sided with Mark Antony during this whole battle. So with those two off the scene, Herod's in a bit of a pickle. What is he going to do? Well, what he ends up doing is he decides after this that he'd better be smart, and he'd better uh, go to Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus. So when you read in the Bible of Caesar Augustus, this is Octavian who becomes Caesar. Um, We'll read about that in just a moment. But what Herod does is he travels personally to meet Octavian at Rhodes and he takes off his crown and basically goes and grovels at the feet of Octavian and says, listen, I was loyal to Antony and now I will be loyal to you. And Octavian sort of says, fair enough and bestows or confirms his kingdom to him. And of course, um, Herod is in rule, and Octavian is in power, when we hit Luke chapter two and verse one, where it says, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, who is this Charlie Octavian, that all the world would be taxed. Herod's on the throne, Caesar or Octavian is the Caesar in Rome, and this is when the whole picture basically comes together um, in the end of these, or the beginning of the gospel record. And we've sort of now traveled this track all the way through from from the time of Alexander the Great to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have, you know, from that time period, we've had those Seleucids in the North, the King of the North, And we've had the Ptolemies who have been the king of the south. And Daniel 11 is really describing the battle between them all the way through. And we have the king of the south being strong. And he's pushing against the king of the north. And he has this great dominion. And that's the same thing we see, verse 11, the king of the south will push with collar and fight against the king of the north, just like we have at the end of the chapter. So it's a pattern of what is to come. And then, of course, we get these lot go off the scene. We have the Romans come along, uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, as we've seen just as a review. One of them shall come, or out of one of them shall come a little horn and wax exceeding great towards the south, the east, and towards Pleasant land. So out of that area of Thrace that's been willed to the Romans, Julius Caesar arrives, uh, Pompey comes down, and he waxes great against the host of heaven, that's the Jewish heavens, casts some of them down to the ground, uh, the stars, that is, the Maccabees, and stamps upon them, and in, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, so he's successful in 63 BC, um, and the queen of the south, um, Cleopatra, united with Mo- Octavian, uh, sorry, with Antonius, Um, and and Herod actually fight against Octavian and they're defeated at that battle of Actium uh, in in 31 BC. And that's when, of course, we have Octavian becoming Augustus and defeating them and establishing universal Roman rule. And that's the end of the King of the North, King of the South situation until the latter days, which we now come to um, where we live today. And so Rome, of course, comes along and destroys Judea in uh, AD 70 and carries them off as slaves throughout the whole Roman Empire. And then the rest of prophecy kicks in, um, in Luke and in Matthew, that they will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then, of course... They're going to back into the land as we see today, 67, Jerusalem has been taken. And we're kind of like jumping back in at the very end of Daniel chapter 11. The king of the south in verse 40 will push at him. And then the king of the north is going to come against him like a whirlwind. So we live in the middle of Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, when it's at the time of the end. And the king of the south, uh, 1917, pushed at him, the Turks, and the king of the north then come against him, the Turks, and they're going to overthrow the one who's going to be in possession of the land, and they're gonna come back into the rest of the land. I mean, that's another class entirely, but it kind of brings us right up to the period we're living in and connects us back with the Jews who lived during that period. So we can kind of see how all of these sounds come together, and amazingly, it's all recorded blow by blow in the book of, of D- Daniel, chapter 11, a continuous historic interpretation, which I think is a point that needs to be made. Because it's not all about the future. And it's not all about the past. It's not futurist or preterist. It's a continuous historical interpretation. The story then gets picked up again at the time of the end which is the time of the restitution of all things, the time in which you and I live, which we are now waiting for this great invasion that's going to take place, except we're not going to be here to see it because in chapter 12, at the same time, Michael's going to stand up, who gave Gabriel this information in the first place, and verse two, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many of righteous to righteousness as the stars forever. And Daniel is told to go your way, you're going to um, sleep basically, you're going to rest, you're gonna be in your lot until that time of the end, and then he's going to be awakened. And we are waiting for that very event when Daniel is going to be awakened, and it's, it's amazing to to see this, that that Daniel is going to be arisen uh, or brought back to life and basically is told to stand in his lot until that that end of days when he's going to be uh, raised from the dead once again and he's going to be um, involved in the rest of this chapter. It's verse 13 of chapter 12. Go your way, Daniel, um, till the time of the end, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. So he's going to be involved at the end of days, which is exactly what we just read about at the time of the end, the king of the north and the south. So what we're waiting for now on pins and needles is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the beloved ones who have been sleeping in the earth, and the the coming together of Christ and his bride to then go out and finish the job that we have here laid out for us. And it's that little phrase, and I just love the way God does this. In verse 45, the king of the north and the king of the south battle it out. In verse 45, the king of the north plants the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Then you get this little sort of like small line that says he shall come to his end and none shall help him. And so he will, and that's what we wait for in great anticipation. So I'll hand it back to you there just gonna try and stop this and uh, if I can do that there we go